been coaching middle school baseball this fall, and and if you've ever been around, say, 11 to 14-year-olds in any particular setting, middle schoolers are 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 they're they're interesting and uh that's that's a good way to put it 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 seems as if middle schoolers need to be told the same things over and over and over and oh it's almost as if their 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 brains just don't work right you know at that stage and and if you're a middle schooler you're like what you know so anyway that's true we've all been there i know some of you were born grown up and so you didn't experience this but but you know how it is and and so anyway we we find ourselves as coaches telling them the same things over and over and over trying to make sure that they can understand one of the things that's very interesting in middle school baseball is that we're playing on the big field up until this point, most of the kids that are that are now on the big field have been on a field where the bases are, are about 70 feet apart and the mound is, is usually no more than about 50 feet away from home plate. And so it's proportionate to their size and strength and talent level. And now they're thrown into what is the major league size field, which is 90 foot bases and a mound that is 60 feet, six inches away from home plate. And so they struggle sometimes. It almost looks as if the game is in slow motion and feels that way to them. And particularly from the pitcher's mound, some of these, these guys that, that once threw really hard from 50 feet, you add another 10 feet in and the ball begins to, to have the gravity effect and, and it begins to drop just a little bit more. And one of the things we constantly tell our guys, we had to tell them again yesterday, is that these guys are not throwing as hard as you might think they are. And we tell them all the time, and, and, and Hank will, will, will be able to attest to this, you've got to wait, 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 wait. And we've got guys that will stand there, and as soon as the ball comes out of the pitcher's hand, they swing. And then there comes the ball. <laughs> it's like the old Bugs Bunny cartoon. You remember that one? You strike one, two, three, you're out. You, know, it's way, you throw that, that really funky pitch. And, and we just tell them, guys, you've, you've got to wait. Trust me. That's what I tell them. I, I sit there right by the dugout, and these guys come into the on-deck circle and eventually to the plate. And I say, guys, just trust. I promise you. I promise. I'm not telling you anything that, that is going to mess you up. I promise. You just got to wait. And it's amazing, of course, that when they do and they they hit the ball really well, they come back and they kind of have that little sheepish grin on their face of, yeah, you know, I I, I see now that's right. It's interesting how they need to be told the same things over and over and over and then finally trust it and begin to live it out and then it clicks for them. And, And the truth is, of course, as we segue from that into the scripture, all of us are like that. There are things that we have to hear over and over and over and over and over again and then begin to trust one step at a time that this is the way that God would want me to do things. This is the life. This is the mission, as we'll see today, that God has called me to. And then we begin to say, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. What we're going to look at this morning is throughout the Gospels and on into the epistles and throughout the entire New Testament is one of those things that's just repeated over and over and over again. We see this in the life and the ministry and in the words of Jesus. We see this in the letters that different folks wrote that are now part of our New Testament. We see this lived down in the early church. This is a repeating theme. And if it's said so often and demonstrated so often, it's something that we ought to pay attention to. But it's something that we hear all the time. I'll just tell you this. This this is going to be one of those sermons that could easily just go in one ear and right out the other. You've heard it a million times. A million times. And by and large, what we have assumed, I think, and I'm not pointing any fingers here, and I include myself, we have assumed that this is for somebody else. 
This is for the super religious people. This is for the missionaries. This is for whomever. This is for the people who do this for a living. And, and unfortunately, it, it's not. It's for all of us. And so I hope that once again, as I simply repeat uh, this same theme that Jesus repeats over and over and over again, as we get to this Bible story this morning, I really do hope that you'll lean in a little bit and, and hear from God on how it is that he would have you embrace this mission of Jesus. So if you've got your Bible handy, I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark is, is over in the New Testament, as I've said. He goes Matthew, then Mark. So it's the second book in the New Testament. Mark chapter 2, we're going to look this morning at a Bible story that kind of follows up on one we saw a few weeks ago. Uh, a few weeks ago we looked at the story where, where the four friends get their, their paralyzed friend and they, they take him to Jesus by cutting a hole in the roof of the house where Jesus is. They lower him down and, and Jesus first of all forgives the man's sins because that's the real reason that Jesus came was not just to do things for us physically although he sometimes blesses us in those ways but ultimately came to heal our souls and forgive us of our sins and set us free and give us eternal life and that's what he does first for this man. He, heals his, he, he, he forgives his sins then he heals the man, and he gets up and walks, and, and all the people are astonished. And it's kind of at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, so we begin to see part of his mission and, and why he's come and so on. And then we pick up the story in verse 13 when Jesus leaves that scene, and he begins uh, to, to enter a different part of his ministry. You'll see here in verse 13, Matthew chapter two, or, uh, Mark chapter 2, rather, verse 13, it says, Then Jesus went out again bes beside the sea, and the whole crowd was coming to him, and he taught them. And then moving on, he saw, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also guests with Jesus and his disciples, because there were many who were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do need one. I didn't come to call the righteous... But sinners, something that is repeated that is very, very obvious. You'll see this there on your outline if you're following along uh, the outline of your bulletin. It's very obvious from Scripture that the mission of Jesus must be our mission. It's, it's, it's plain and it's simple. It has been handed off to us. It seems like an obvious truth, and it is. Jesus operates. He speaks in such a way uh, that we can hardly miss this in the Gospels. We can hardly miss this from the book of Acts. We can hardly miss this from all of the New Testament epistles and letters. We see that the mission of Jesus to seek and save those who are lost is handed off to his disciples first and then to the church and then, of course, down through the ages still for us today. Jesus, in his mission, had a, had a particular message that he wanted to convey. It says here in verse 13 that he sits down and he teaches them. He's teaching them a particular thing. It's the same message that he's, that he's going to teach throughout. It's about the kingdom of God, how the kingdom of God has come near, and so it's time to repent and surrender completely to the Lord. And ultimately, as we see, the, the message is about the cross and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we go on, and, and we see in verses 14 and 15, when he says specifically to Levi, follow me. It, it's, a, it's a message of grace and invitation. He, he's inviting, by the way, someone that a rabbi would never invite to follow him. 
a tax collector. We'll get into that in just a minute. But our, our message, it's very clear in Scripture, our mission must be the same as Jesus, which includes this message. Our, our message can't be anything different from what Jesus preached, from what is preached in the New Testament. Uh, that that we, we, we cannot preach anything but salvation in Jesus alone. That's why we talk all the time about it. You saw in the baptism church, if you were here a few weeks ago, it's Jesus plus nothing. That's what we teach. That's what we preach. That's his message, that it is Jesus and Jesus alone who provides for us salvation and life everlasting. And so Jesus and his mission constantly conveying that same message over and over. And, and as he goes around through his mission, not only is he preaching a particular message, but he's, but he's reaching a particular people. Uh, we, we see fishermen called to be his disciples over in Matthew and Mark, rather, chapter 1. We saw that story a few weeks ago. And then we see him reaching out to the sick and those who are possessed by demons, those who had leprosy. He heals a paralyzed man. And in our, in our verses today, we see he goes a step further and he calls disciples to himself. He's going to eat with very interesting company. And he has a lot of these kinds of people who are following him around. So we've got fishermen and, and those who are sick and the lepers and, and those who are demon-possessed and the paralyzed and the tax collectors and the sinners. And those are the people that Jesus came to reach. Those were the objects of his mission. Now, for a lot of people, that was surprising. Uh, they, they didn't think that anyone who would claim to be a good Jewish teacher, uh, much less anyone who would claim to be on a mission from God, would, would, would hang out with those people. Ordinarily, it was those who had their act together that would be, uh, would, would be the targets of association for religious leaders. But Jesus proves the opposite. He came for all of us, even the ordinary, even the down and out, even the most hardened sinners, even those who, who can't get their act together. You recognize any of those folks? They're sitting all around you this morning. They're standing in front of you this morning. The people that Jesus came to reach are those like you and like me who need him, who are desperate for him. Jesus also in his mission, he, he trains his disciples, of course. Uh, in, in Mark chapter 2 here, verse 16, we see that the disciples are right there as this, uh, this episode unfolds. That we'll talk more about in just a second. They, they're witnesses to it. Later in the Gospels, we see Jesus sends out his disciples two by two to be a part of his mission, fulfill his mission. And it's in situations like this here in Mark chapter 2 that they're exposed to and they, and they learn about really what Jesus wanted them to do. It was not a mission of, of comfort and elitism. Don't, don't, don't mistake that. Sometimes we think that, that if I follow the Lord and I get on board with what he's doing, then, man, it's, it's going to be a really comfortable kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I, I'm going to be highly respected in my community. Jesus had a mission of grace and of sacrifice. It was a one-sided mission with no guarantee of a payback. And from the very beginning of his ministry, that's what he shows his disciples he's all about, is this mission. We are called in Scripture to imitate him, to do what Jesus did. It's easy to ignore verses like these in Mark chapter 2, by the way. Very easy to ignore that. And sometimes we fall short. But his mission is obvious. It's to teach. It's to reach. It, it's to train. And ultimately, it's, it's to get to the cross. And our mission, by proxy, is the same thing. To follow him in doing that. To teach. To reach. To train people. To point them to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. I've had folks who have talked to me before 
when, I, when I'm operating in different pastor circles or ministry circles and conferences, and well, what's, what's the mission of your church? What's your mission statement? And we, we've written something that reflects what the mission is of, 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 uh, of the Lord. Our, our mission statement, by the way, just in case you ever wanted to know, it's really uh, not anything that I expect you to memorize, but we, we have settled it down to these three things or what we want to focus on. It, it's to engage in relationship with God and others, to, to equip people for life and service, and to evangelize the lost locally and globally. Do you know where that really just comes from? It comes from the mission of Jesus that was handed off to the disciples in Matthew chapter 28 when he said, go and make disciples. That's ultimately our mission. Now, we've kind of distilled it down to some terms maybe that, that we can remember very easily and so on, but that's, that's the mission of the church is to follow Jesus in doing what he did. Now, I can inspire you with all that and say, that's your mission this week is to go do what Jesus did. But what do you do? You ever heard those sermons and you get really inspired and you think, okay, well, man, that sounds great. I'm, man, I'm amped up. And you say a prayer at the end of it and you sing a really inspiring song. And today we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And you may walk away feeling emotionally charged. All right, I'm ready. But I don't know what to do. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. I, I think that that's a lot where we leave things and probably a lot why we don't fulfill the mission that we've been given. So, so this morning, I, I want you to think along with me. I want you to, to really work through how would this look if I did this this week? If I, if I really focused on these things this week, what would it look like for me and the people that I'm around every single day? Whether it's people you live with, work with, go to school with, uh, just simply live next to, whatever it may be, how would it look? What would my life be like? What would I do if these were the things I was, were focused on this week? So I'm going to try to give you three things that, that will help us apply this idea that the mission of Jesus must be our mission. All right? The first one is this. Never forget who you are apart from Jesus. Never forget who you are apart from Jesus. There's three groups of people that Jesus interacts with here in these verses, all of whom, by the way, needed him. And I think we could easily identify ourselves in one of these three groups today. The first you have is a group of sinners. These are the people that are, for whatever reason, are unable to keep God's laws. And this would include, of course, all of us. In the book of Romans, we're told, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes that all of us, have sinned. We, we've all we've all not been able to measure up to God's standard. Even even those of you that are that are just so wonderful, right? Even you, sinner, sinner. Even you, listen, even the best of us have sinned. Even the worst of us stand on equal ground with the best of us, the Bible says. Because in God's eyes, there are none of us any good except Jesus Christ, which is why he came. <laughs> you get that? If we could be good on our own, Jesus wouldn't have needed to, to live or to die. Wouldn't have made any difference. So you have sinners. And if you need more proof, let me just, let me just reference a couple of things for you. We won't go there and read them all. But if you need proof that you're a sinner, um, aside from just life and, and our own basic selfishness and all that, go to the Ten Commandments, it's in Exodus chapter 20, and then read Matthew chapter 5. And really read it and say, God, I, I don't believe that I am a sinner in any way. Uh, and so I'm going to read this, but, but, but I'll read it honestly. And then God will expose you probably five million times on how sinful, just sinful, we really are. So, so if you need proof, that's what, but, but anyway, he, he, he first is around sinners. And, and then it says he's around tax collectors. These people were known for their greediness, uh, for, for being manipulators and liars and immoral and selfish and dishonest. 
And none of us would want to admit that, but if we think back to this previous week, how many opportunities we had to be greedy, to manipulate someone, to lie, even just, you know, well, it didn't hurt anybody kind of lie, to do things that are immoral, to be selfish, to be slightly dishonest. Maybe we wind up in that category. And then I would venture to say that some of us this morning, though we wouldn't want to admit it, we wind up in the category of the Pharisees. These are the folks that are constantly trying to perform, following all the rules, counting on their own personal goodness, playing a comparison game. Well, you know, I'm not perfect, but I ain't like that guy. Praise God. That's the words of the Pharisees. Assuming these Pharisees, assuming that knowledge of Scripture and avoidance of sinners equals love for God. Don't miss that. It's easy for us to assume that, well, I know the Scripture. I, I've read the Bible some. I listen on Sunday mornings. And I avoid all those people who would drag me down into sin. And so that must mean that I really love God. That's what the Pharisees thought. We've got to never forget who we are apart from Jesus. We are either one of those sinners, a tax collector, or a Pharisee apart from Jesus. And we've got to never forget that Jesus, literally, the Bible says, became sin so that we might exchange our lives for him. Knowing what he's done for us is not a cause for arrogance, but of humility. And maybe today you'd say, you know what, I recognize 100% who I am apart from Jesus, and it's time for me to repent. Time for me to turn from my sin. Time for me to praise him for what he has done for me. Time for me to surrender my life completely to him. Secondly, if you're going to apply this this week, never stop doing what it takes to reach those far from him. The daily exercise of saying, Lord, I tell you what, I, I want to be on mission for you. I'm going to recognize who I am apart from you, which will help me with my compassion for other people. I'll realize that I am no better than them. And secondly, I'm going to do whatever it takes to reach those people that are far from, from, from Jesus. What rabbi, what good teacher, what, what moral person would call a tax collector in verse 14 to follow him? Levi, also known as Matthew, by the way, the writer of the gospel, he was a Jew by birth, as were all the other tax collectors mentioned in the gospels. And they were sort of a middleman between the Romans and the Jews. So the Romans would hire them to go collect the taxes on the Jews. And what they would do is if you owed them a dollar, they'd charge you two. And there was nothing that you could do about it. Because they would go and report you for not paying your taxes, and then you deal with the Roman government. That's just the way it worked. They cared more about making a profit than they did about being faithful Jews, and they were more loyal to the Roman government than to their own fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. And they were hated. They were hated, despised. They were considered traitors. Later on, the Jewish writers would lump them together with murderers and thieves. Tax collectors were not allowed to serve as witnesses in court because they were considered so dishonest. Immediately, they're thrown out. They were expelled from the synagogue so they could not participate in religious activities, so they're constantly unclean according to Jewish law. And their mere presence, according to Jewish law, rendered the entire house and everybody in it unclean. And that was a big deal. They're constant and physical reminders of the Roman domination that the Jews faced. And those who were so-called godly, they would never, never, never be willing to associate with people like that. But Jesus operated in a different way, didn't he? All the time. 
he, he called Levi to be his disciple, and then what? Then he stirred it up even more, because you know what he went and did? He, he, he went and associated with them in a very intimate setting. He's a guest at a meal. Now, back then, way back then, the idea of hospitality and eating together was a sign of friendship, was a sign that, that, that we're in a, in a close relationship together. Sometimes we eat with people now, and it's just for business, right? It's just, hey, let's get together. We've got some things to talk about. But sometimes we know when you have people over to your house, it's a little bit differently, right? You'll meet them at a restaurant somewhere. if Maybe you're not very close to them. But the, the people that you want to get to know better, you'll invite them to your house, or you'll be invited to their house house and you stuff everything in that one closet right before they they come over right and just okay don't you know you've got certain doors and you know you've got it all cordoned off and you know curtains are up in this area now you can borrow the curtains from the church by the way we've got these big tall things if you need to section off part of your house and nobody needs to go in when you have company but but if we want to get to know people we want to to, to show them a, a sign of our of our love and, and acceptance and reaching out to them we eat with them typically in a home and that's what Jesus was doing and the people who tried to follow all the religious rules now had a big problem. Look at verse 16. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors, tax collectors and sinners? What's he doing? These sinners, for whatever reason, as I said, couldn't keep all the Jewish laws. Not the kind of folks that an upstanding rabbi would associate with. Some of them are criminals, have done some really bad things. They didn't really know the scripture. They didn't understand it. They certainly didn't live it out. We've already talked about the tax collectors. Now, the Pharisees might have been okay if Jesus just preached to all these people. If he had just stood up and said, you bunch of sinners, you're going to hell, and you need to repent right now. Or I will call down thunder from heaven and you'll go to hell right now. Promise. Repent or die. Turn or burn, right? That's what they would have been okay with. Jesus standing up and preaching and yelling and screaming at them because of how bad and awful and terrible their lives were. They would have been probably okay with that. But Jesus doesn't doesn't do that. Instead, what what, what does he do? He, He goes and eats with them. There's so much, I think, for us to learn about Jesus. And I, and I think from a church standpoint as well. I, I think we, we, do, we do a pretty good job with some of these. But we've got to be vigilant to make sure we keep, keep doing that. You know, we, we can't wait for people to clean up their act before we, we welcome them in. If we waited for everybody to, to get right with God before we began to minister to them and to help them and to, to allow them to come to our church service, do you know how many people should show up every week? Zero. you know how many people should stand up and preach every week? Zero. None. None of us got our act together, do we? Everybody's messed up. Everybody's sinned this week. One of the things we've got to make sure that Jesus, to to model what Jesus did, we don't wait for people to clean their act up. Listen, I'm going to tell you this. If we ever get to the point, if we ever get to the point where where we are more concerned about people, oh, you've got to be this way and act this way and so on, then we are no longer a church. We're, We're simply, what, a country club maybe? I don't know. One of the things I appreciate about Elm Grove, really appreciate it, is as I look around here on a Sunday morning, I don't see anybody who would not feel welcome in our church based upon who they are, where they live, what they wear, anything. And I appreciate that about us. We've got to make sure we don't cut off their ears before they have a chance to hear the message. Well, you've got to do this and do that. No, no, no. 
And then we also, we can't apologize to those who criticize or are confused about the kind of ministry that we do. I'll never forget when I was going into high school, and I've mentioned this before, but it's been a while. The man who I was going to play high school baseball for had a reputation of being kind of rough. His language was colorful. Um, he, he had that reputation. He was pretty hard on his players. He was the type of guy that if you were a good Christian, oh, I don't know, you should go play for him. And I remember when my parents made the decision with me together, we sort of agreed, this is where I'm going to go to school, and that's where I'm going to play baseball. There were people from my church who went to my parents and said, hold on, what are you doing? Don't you know who that man is? Don't you know what kind of words he uses? Don't you know the way that he talks? Don't you know you're not supposed to associate with people like that? I did that man's funeral back in April. Had the chance to be with him in his dying moments. And he's one of the three most influential people in my life. A man who was imperfect, but a man who God surrounded with Jesus' people, if that makes sense. And a man who came to faith in Christ. Not because of me, but because there were lots of people God just kept sending his way. Let me tell you this. That person in your life, whoever that may be, may be the person that God is sending you to. And everybody around you is going to look at you like you're crazy. Why do you keep associating with that person? You should just wipe your hands and, and move on from that person. And listen, if every Christian did that, how many people would be taking the gospel of Jesus to that person? There'd be none. You're going to face criticism when you're on mission for Jesus. You're, you're going to have people not understand, but you've got to be willing to do whatever it takes to reach people that are far from him. And then thirdly and finally, let me encourage us all, both individually and as a church. And folks, hear me on this from an organizational standpoint. Whether you are simply a person who attends here every week, or you serve in some capacity, or you're in leadership, whatever it is, hear me individually and hear me collectively. We can never be satisfied with serving the already served. We can never be satisfied with simply serving the already served. Jesus says this in verse 17. What does he say? Those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It would be crazy for a doctor to say, oh, no, I only deal with people that aren't sick. What? Now, yeah, I just, I, I would prefer to talk with them about how healthy they are. Uh, you know, in fact, I just don't like dealing with diseases. But you're a doctor. Yeah, but, but I, I just, I don't, I just don't, I don't think those, you know, those people, they're going to have to figure it out. They have made their own bed. They can lie in it. I mean, they decided not to wash their hands after they went to the bathroom. That's their fault. You know, they decided to get real close to the snotty nosed kid. Sorry. They can deal with their own sickness. You know what doctors do? Doctors will tell you the truth, but you know what? They treat your illness, don't they? They don't sit there and just say, well, you did it to yourself. See you. Thanks for your $20 copay. You know, they don't, they don't do that. It would be absurd for a doctor to simply hang out with those who are well and call himself a doctor. It's the sick that need a doctor. And as a doctor is expected to be around the sick, the Savior can be expected to be around those who need salvation. 
And by extension, his disciples, you and me, can be expected that we will be around the people who need him most, not just the folks who already know him. Now there's a fine line here. The church exists certainly to build up its believers, but it exists to build up the believers for the purpose of reaching the world for Jesus Christ. The world is out there. We have the tendency to write people off sometimes, well, there's no chance for that person. We have the tendency to huddle up and say, well, I'm kind of, I don't know if this, uh, you know, I don't want to get stained by the world and I'm not sure about it all. We have the tendency to say we want to reach our communities, but we really want to reach the good people in our communities. We have a tendency to be just like the Pharisees sometimes, don't we? And, and, and largely we don't even know it. But those who are outsiders know it. You realize that by and large we get lulled to sleep in here on Sunday mornings. Our building is full. Most churches aren't. We got to baptize eight people about three weeks ago. Most churches baptize nobody in a year. I don't say that because we're any better. I say that because if we are not vigilant, if we do not continue to reach the unreached and serve the unserved in the name of Jesus, then one day we will just sit around and serve the already served and God will move on. He will move on. We will no longer experience his anointing and his blessing and we won't be making disciples. We'll just be congratulating each other on how good we are. And we'll be a bunch of Pharisees. And so this week, I wonder if you would say, you know what, Lord, I want your mission to, to, to be my mission this week. And so, God, I, I, I want, I'm not going to forget who I am. Lord, every day I'm going to praise you for the salvation that I received. And God, I want you to humble me so that I see people the way you see them. And Lord, I'm never going to stop doing what it takes to reach people who are far from you. Let me encourage you, seriously, this week, spend time with someone who doesn't know Jesus. And if you don't know anybody who doesn't know Jesus, it, 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 it's probably time to, to wake up, quite honestly. It's probably time to say, Lord, I, well, I don't know anybody who's not a Christian. I've got to get out there a little bit. Maybe you'd schedule a meeting, a, a lunch, have somebody over to your house just like Jesus met and ate with those who are far from him and just say, look, I, I just want to get together. Just want to, know you, want to let you know we love you, whatever it is. And then let's make sure that as a church and as individuals that we never get satisfied just with a full building, just with the bills paid. Just with a little extra money in the bank for the church. And what we only are satisfied with is Jesus invading the lives of the people who are here and through us invading the lives of the people in this community. That's what we go for. 